Well, as we come to Colossians chapter 2, we start to see the beginning of a new theme. One of the main purposes for writing this letter. Remember, one of the main reasons why Paul was writing to the church in Colossae was to help them avoid falling into heresy. See, there was this, this vocal group that was mixing the works of Judaism along with principles of Greek philosophy and adding in just enough Christianity to cause a major issue for the churches in the Lycos Valley. They were teaching that they had the answer. They were teaching that they had the knowledge. They were teaching that they had the wisdom. The works of Judaism plus Jesus is error. Greek philosophy plus Jesus is error. Watered down, unbiblical Jesus is error. Anything plus Jesus is error. Anything subtracted from Jesus is error. That's one of the main thrusts of the teaching of this letter to the Colossians. And in the broad sweeps of Colossians, we can see then the first part of Colossians was a prayer, a description of the gospel. The middle of chapter 1 as we studied, was this discourse, this treaty on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The last part of chapter 1 and now the beginning of chapter 2 is a a defense, a justification of Paul's ministries and goals and authority. So after laying out the truth of the gospel, the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ, and the calling of his ministry, all of this teaching now converges and sets up very nicely his teaching against the false and erroneous beliefs that were infiltrating the church. As I was preparing for the sermon today, my introduction of chapter 2 was getting longer and longer and longer. So today, I'm going to do an extended introduction to this new theme of Paul's letter, culminating on this one thought. Colossians 2, verse 3, that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Father, we pray now in these moments that your word, your truth, your Jesus, our Savior, he would be honored and his his truth would permeate our lives through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of the realities of life is that we are all following someone. We're all influenced by some power in our lives we deem to have authority. All people. The question isn't, are you a follower? The question is, who are you following? Or as Nobel Prize winner Bob Dylan put it, You're going to have to serve somebody. Dylan goes on and on in his song listing all different types of people. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be a heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with long strings of pearls. You may be a construction worker working at home. You may be living in a mansion or living in a dome. You might own guns. You might even own tanks. You might be somebody's landlord. You might even own banks. After every one of these verses, listing all these different types of people, he has the chorus. But you're going to have to serve somebody. You're going to have to serve somebody. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Folks, that's just true. 
We all listen to other people in our lives, which influences who we are and the choices we make. We all have authoritative voices in our lives that help direct our very actions. We like to think we're autonomous. We like to think we're self-made. We like to think we're self-determinative. But in reality, we are all following someone. We're all serving someone. There are voices that we have given authority to in our lives that influence, that even, even help determine what we do and who we are. These voices, these thoughts, these authorities in our lives often compete with each other. Is what the culture says about me, who I am and what I do, is that the authority I listen to? Is what my teacher or my college professor says about me, who I am and what I do, is that the authority I listen to? It's what my parents said about me, who I am and what I do. Is that the authority you listen to? It's what a politician says about me and who I am and what I do. Is that the authority you listen to? What about your own feelings? What you say about yourself and who you are and what you do. Is that the authority you listen to? Is what God's word says about me, who I am and what I do. Is that the authority I listen to? It's important to evaluate our lives. It's important to think about how we think. To think about how we make decisions. To evaluate which voices are carrying authority in our lives. Who do we think is smart? Who do you think is knowledgeable? Who do you esteem as right? Who do you say in your hearts and in your thoughts That's the person I'm going to follow. That's the person who gets to speak authoritatively in my life. Now, for the vast majority of our culture, the answer to that question is very, very simple. The answer is their own voice. It's me. The voice of the most authority that carries the most weight is our own selfish voice. See, selfishness is so rampant in our culture. We are so steeped in an epidemic of selfishness that it's even become hard to evaluate. Our society breeds in us this selfish, self-actualization that makes us king or queens of our own world. The most important ethic has become, do what you feel is right for you. That ethic has become so strong and pervasive that to evaluate it and say that what a person is feeling is not good, not right, or not best for them has become unethical to do. Our culture has declared there is one voice of authority. There is one voice that you should be listening to, and that's your own voice. Our own voice of selfishness. Our cultural ethic has changed from doing what is right to doing what feels right, and that, folks, is a tectonic change. For decades, our culture has been teaching our children that they are arbiters of truth for their own lives. All truth is relative. You can be and do whatever you want. You're the center most important person in your life. And now this massive cultural shift has taken so root that monumental changes are happening in our society at a pace never before seen. Well, the ground was made ready over these past decades, and now the seeds sown are reaping a harvest of personal and societal fragmentation, isolation, and damage. But what was supposed to give the most ultimate freedom is only leading to greater loss and heartache. 
what was supposed to be the greatest of all wisdom, be true to yourself, is actually an entrapping lie. Think about it. What does that kind of teaching get you? It gets you people who think that they're the highest authorities in their own lives. It gets people who think that they are the arbiters of right and wrong. The greatest ethic, the greatest morality has nothing to do with other people. It has nothing to do with truth. It's all focused on me, myself, and I. The unholy trinity of selfishness. Morality has changed from being true to a standard of ethics to be true to whatever set of standards, if any, you want. It's more immoral today to call something wrong or to call something a sin than to actually do that wrong or to do that sin. What is most valued in our culture today is being authentic to your feelings. The greatest of all is to be yourself. Your identity has become your feelings. How sad and how destructive. The mantra of be true to yourself needs to be replaced with be true to the truth. We all serve somebody. Today, Dylan would have to add to his song that it might be you that you're serving. Now, of course, we all want our children to be the best they can be. Parents for millennia and all cultures all over the world want their children to be the best they can be, to reach their potential, to be authentic, real people. That's never changed. What has changed is the framework in which we become our best. What has changed is the fence around the playground. Think about this with me. The fence around the playground is there to provide and protect the kids who are playing in the playground. While in the playground, they can enjoy the playground more fully, more completely, and with greater freedom. Because the fence provides them security and protects their safety. There is more joy. There is more fulfillment because there's a fence. Now, as we think through this analogy, think about all of us as children. And the fence is God's word. We're all children, and the fence is God's moral absolutes of truth. Well, inside that fence, uh, you know, life is full of real, significant, purposeful, meaningful stuff of life. All for our enjoyment. Even when we fall and scrape our knee, it's still within the fence. It has meaning and purpose and value. But with the eradication of the fence, with the destruction of moral right and wrong, with the removal of the fence of truth that is based on absolutes, on the truth of God's word, what is happening in our culture isn't really more joy, more freedom, or more security, but it's less joy. It's less freedom. It's less security. It seemed like the fence was holding us back. For generations we've been told the fence was keeping us back. But in reality, the fence was providing and protecting for us. It seemed like the fence was keeping us from joy and fulfillment in life. So our culture got rid of it. But in reality, life in the playground without a fence is much harder, much sadder, much more full of loss and heartache and brokenness. What was supposed to give us more freedom and joy only brought more loss and bondage. The reality is that life in the playground, with the fence, is far superior to life in a playground without the fence. The great lie of our culture is that a fenceless life 
is more freeing and full. Tear down the fence of truth. Tear down the fence of right and wrong. Tear down any connection to a moral God that makes moral claims on our lives. Tear down the fence and find freedom. When in actuality, in the reality of life, when the fence is down, that's when life is most costly, most broken, in a bondage-filled life. Why does God want us to embrace the fence? Why does God want us to find our identity in Him? Because in reality, He wants us to know the greatest joys that this life has to offer. See, can't you see it? Our culture is yelling at the top of its lungs. The main ethic of this life is to be true to whatever you want. That's how you find fulfillment and happiness. Shake off the shackles of truth and morality and be true to yourself. And our God is yelling at the top of His lungs. The main ethic of life is to be true to me. And what he wants. That's how you find happiness and fulfillment. Shake off the shackles of selfishness and immorality and be true to me. Stark differences of these two competing worldviews is becoming so clear in our day. But the voice of the one is heard day in and day out, over and over and over again, while the voice of the other is often only heard on a Sunday morning. See, at the heart of it all, The problem's not cultural. The answer isn't, let's all get excited and try to go change our society. The heart of the problem is spiritual. The answer is to change our hearts. What is really happening isn't just the desire to throw off the shackles of truth, but to throw off the shackles of God. The cultural message behind be true to yourself is, be your own God. Be the arbiter of your own truth, of your own ethic. Of your own selfishness, be your own God. The ethical war we are in as Christians is not to get our culture to be more moral. That's a fool's errand. The war we are in is the exact same war that's been going on since the Garden of Eden. It's a spiritual war for the very souls of mankind. Adam and Eve said, they looked God and they said, thank you God for this great place. Thank you for this great life you've given to us. But we choose ourselves over you. We choose our wisdom. We choose our understanding. We choose our selfishness over you. We choose the desires of our eyes. We choose the desires of our flesh. We choose the selfishness of our wants above you. Adam and Eve, all those years ago, looked at God and said, God, we choose us to be God over you. See, what we're dealing with is nothing new at all. But the acceleration of the harvest of evil that is reaping in our day is horrific. See, the problem is spiritual, and the answer is to change our hearts. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, you know, what were you drinking in, the, in, your, in your study as you were preparing, Pastor? What's going on? Well, as I was reading our passage for today, it just hit me right between the eyes. Now, what the Colossians were dealing with, so are we. We're in a fight for for who are we going to listen to? See, the false teachers of their day of the uh, of the uh, were teaching the truth against God, against Jesus Christ. One of the main purposes of this letter from Paul was to the Colossians was to help them choose Christ. To help them choose Christ over all the voices that were calling out for them to follow and to serve someone else. They had a choice before them. 
just like us. Who are we going to serve? If you're not there already, please open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Let's look at some of these verses that point out the challenge that these Colossian believers were facing. Colossians chapter 2 verse 4 says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Verse 16 and following, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink over regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in details about visions puffed up without reasons by his own sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourisheth. And knit together, its joints and ligaments grow with a growth that is from God. Now we're going to delve into these passages more as we get to them through our series in Colossians. But the point I want to make today is that the Colossians were in a fight. They were in a fight for who was going to have authority in their life. Who were they going to listen to? Who was going to be the authority in their lives teaching them who God is and who they are? Who are they going to follow? Who are they going to serve? Verse 4 says they were being deluded with plausible arguments. Verse 8 says they were being captivated by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. Verse 18 says that they were trying to be influenced by those who were puffed up with their own reasoning, not holding fast to God. They were in a fight for who would have authority to speak into their lives. And their fight is our fight. Because, folks, our culture is out there trying to to delude us with plausible arguments. They're trying to captivate us by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world. They are going around puffed up with their own reasoning. Their fight is our fight. We're going to see several things over the next several weeks as we go through chapter 2 that will help us, that will guide and direct us in this fight. But today I want to look at just one. The one. The most ultimate truth that destroys their argument, that exposes the false philosophy, that obliterates their own reasonings. And it's found in chapter 2, verse 3. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See, the greatest answer to their argument is Jesus Christ. The greatest response to their philosophy is Jesus Christ. The greatest wisdom to their reasoning is Jesus Christ. And I'm not talking theology. I love good theology. I'm not talking doctrine. I love good doctrine. I'm not even talking about the Bible, though I cherish the infallible, inerrant word of God. I'm talking about a person. The person, the one, Jesus Christ. See, my faith is not in great theology, though I'd love to argue with you over theology. My faith is not in great doctrine, 
So it's impeccable. My faith isn't even in the Bible. Though I know everything that it says is true and without error. My faith is in a person. The person, the one, Jesus Christ. He, Jesus Christ, has authority in my life. He, Jesus Christ, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He, Jesus Christ, gets to direct my life. His thoughts, his words, his teaching, they are determinative to the way I live my life. His fence around the playground of my life gives me the very best life possible on earth. Not the easiest life, just the best. Not the richest life, just the best. Not the indulgent life, just the best. You see, I have a Savior. I have a Lord. I have someone in my life whom I acknowledge as my authority. What he says, I willingly do. What he teaches, I willingly believe. Because Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, eternal God, came to earth in the fullness of time, born of the Virgin Mary, lived a sinless life, died a sacrificial death in my place, rose victorious, vindicating and triumph over death and sin, is now seated at the right hand of God and is soon coming back again as the conquering king. This is Jesus Christ. This is the person. This is the one that has authority in my life, in your life. To have him is to have it all. To know him is to know it all. To follow him is to, is to follow it all. They were teaching that they had the answer. They had the knowledge. They had the wisdom. Anything plus Jesus is error. Anything subtracted from Jesus is error. In him, in Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of the wisdom and knowledge. Our world is always trying to find wisdom and knowledge and truth outside of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.18 and following describes it this way. For the word of cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ. Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, Christ, the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What to the world is folly? What to the world is foolishness? To us is the most precious. Christ, the power of God, Christ, the wisdom of God, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
in the context of these three areas where Paul addresses the threatening heresy in Colossae, he points to Jesus as the answer every time. Verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Verse 3, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Verse 9, for in him, in Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you've been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Before verses 16 and 19, it talks about Christ's triumphal victory on the cross. And after it, it talks about believers being united with Christ in his death. Even when Paul starts to talk about the practical doctrinal teaching in verses in chapters three and four. He begins all that talking about Jesus, that our lives are hidden with Jesus, about setting our minds on things above, about on things of Christ. So I want to boldly challenge you today. In the midst of a culture that is doing everything it can do to separate you from Jesus Christ, choose Christ. That in the culture that's coming after us with plausible arguments, choose Christ. That in the culture that is trying to captivate us with vacant philosophies and empty deceit, choose Christ. And I'm not just talking about salvation here. I'm not just talking about the start of your choice for Jesus Christ. I'm talking about challenging us each day, every day, every hour. Choose Christ, his will, his word, his plan, his goals, his priority, his honor, his worship. All first. All foremost, he alone has the authoritative voice. In our lives. I'm not talking about the casual Christian life. You know, when you pull Jesus out every Sunday and tuck him back away the rest of the week, when you pull him back out again when you're in some time of need, I'm talking about choosing Jesus Christ as the authority of your life. I'm talking about you getting off the throne of your life and you acknowledging Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life. Talking about drowning out these false voices of our culture so that we can tune our minds and our thoughts under the one true voice of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm talking about not just receiving Jesus as the Lord and Savior of our life, but actually living daily, 24-7, with Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life. Embrace the fence. And enjoy the playground. Choose Christ as the authority in your life. And I can guarantee you one thing. You won't regret it. Matt Woodley writes this story about his 18-year-old son. He says, a few summers ago, I watched our 18-year-old son participate in a real X-ball paintball tournament with sophisticated paintball guns that shoot 13 paintballs per second. The matches are quick and exciting, and they're also chaotic. The X-ball concept depends on Five players from each team shooting at their opponents and working their way up a large outdoor field. The goal is to eliminate the other team's players by hitting them with a paintball so that um, you can capture their flag. But it's not an easy task. The main problem is that in the midst of thousands of flying paintballs, it's tough to spot your opponent. The other team can crouch and dive behind bunkers and barriers. And to make matters even worse... As your team's coach 
shouts out the right information about your opponent's location, the other team's fans start yelling false information. When they heard the other fans intentionally confusing my son's teammates, I was shocked, this father says. It sounded like cheating to me. But after the match, my son calmly informed me, Oh yeah, Dad, that's called counter-coaching. They're trying to distract our players with false information. It's part of the game, Dad. We have to deal with it all the time. It just means that we have to focus on our coach and block out all the other distractions. Willie concludes saying the Bible clearly gives us that it's not easy to listen for God's voice. There'll be plenty of counterculture coaching from our culture, the devil, and from our own distracted hearts. What my son said, that part, that's part of the game. We have to deal with it all the time. There's only one way to combat spiritual counter-coaching. That's to know the voice of Jesus. Hanging on every word, we trust and obey him.